1: Giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T Mobile.com slash now.
0: Pushkin. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right, enjoy the episode. It's hard to believe Andrew Watt is only 30 years old. Just consider the artists he's worked with over the last five years. Ozzy Osbourne, Miley Cyrus, Sam Smith, Justin Bieber he's quietly become one of the biggest producers in the industry, leading to a nomination at the upcoming Grammys for Producer of the Year. But before Watt started his production journey five years ago, he was a songwriter and guitar player. This song, Ghost in My Head, is from a 2015 EP he released, and it perfectly captures why he's been able to straddle the usually firm line between hard rock and pop music. It's something he's helped Post Malone do over the last few years, and also did for Miley Cyrus on her new album, Plastic Hearts. In this episode, Andrew Watt talks to Rick Rubin about getting his start in music interning with The Roots, his journey to becoming a top tier music producer, and about a frightening experience with COVID he had in the early days of the pandemic. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond.
2: Here's Rick Rubin's conversation with Andrew Watt. Let's start with COVID. When did you realize you had it? I was working with an artist and literally
3: canceling is not something that I do ever because people's time, as you know, right? That's the most important thing. Showing up somewhere and being there, especially for someone that wants to create with you. It's such a blessing to be able to do in the beginning. So I am not a canceller, And I just kind of woke up And I was feeling so just fluey and not good where I was just like, if I go to the studio, I'm going to maybe get people sick. So let me just figure out what's happening. This is March 5th. And whenever I would get sick before, which thankfully was not that much, you start feeling like kind of dreamlike where you're like, okay, something's in me that's kind of making me not.
2: Like spaced out.
3: Totally. Can't connect thoughts the right way and everything. So I um, had a doctor come and see me a flu test you're negative and i'm like So in march were people talking about coronavirus
2: yet not no, really. just
3: like it's happening in the world there's no cases in la you didn't know any,
2: you didn't know anyone who had it
3: nope but i said to this doctor that was there i was like do i have corona everyone's having it i have the symptoms i'm like my throat's hurting me i have a dry cough i'm all this stuff like there's no way you have corona it's not here in america yet they're containing it. it's containing it's, it's impossible you have the flu do a flu test negative do another one negative take this uh tamiflu take these steroids for the swelling and and you know take advil all oh, and so i'm i do everything he says and taking it I'm taking it i'm not getting better so i'm like dude i have corona how long
2: how long <laughs> was it before the next I, step five days right i'm yes. like so five days you're doing everything the doctor said yes bad flu
3: th- taking it not getting better not getting better getting worse or staying the same um just like not getting better whereas usually like a thing would be whatever yeah, so it would pass it would, normally it would so pass quickly I have whatever this day like seven days in around like march 12th where i'm like all right this time of flu worked and i'm kind of like I feel that I'm coming on the other side, right? So call everyone, all right, I'm ready to go back to work, blah, blah, blah. But people are talking about corona. In this time, I find out that Lucy and Grange is like really sick, right? And there's this party that happened. You heard about this at Palm Springs for his birthday. And a a couple people from London were there and they're getting sick. So I'm like, okay, maybe I got it and then I'm better. Two days after... Wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm like hallucinating. You know, I'm like, I feel like death. I can't breathe. I'm like this. I'm like, whoa, what's happening? So, I called a. a and this
2: is worse than it was. Yeah,
3: worse than it was. And I call this doctor. I'm like, this guy I was seeing. I'm like, I gotta get to this. Blah blah. He comes over, gives me another flu test. He's like, you don't have Corona. People don't have it here. Like over and over. Take the Advil. I finally. Um, you know, a friend of, of mine got me a different doctor who was like a really, you know, I guess, and not that this other doctor wasn't a good doctor or trying to do his best, but no one knows anything at this point, right? So he gets me this other doctor and he's like, you can't breathe. Your, you know, oxygen's lower. We're going to the hospital. So we go to the hospital.
2: Which hospital did you go to?
3: I went to UCLA. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there. I literally can't breathe. It's like a weird feeling. I'm 29 years old. It's Terrible. Scary. And I don't know what's going on, but yeah. I'm like... Have you ever been in the hospital before? I had been in the hospital before, but only for like simple things. Never like, you know... Like, Do you ever stay in the hospital before? No. Yeah. Appendix out. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, tonsils. Yeah. Hernia. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm there... And finally, they're like, they're giving me a flu test. I'm negative. I'm like, can you test me for Corona? This other great, nice doctor comes with me to the hospital. He's like, there, he's like, test this guy for Corona. No one can get tests. No one can do anything. So I'm there at the hospital. Finally, they take me to get a chest X-ray. They won't test me for anything. Chest X-ray, my chest X-ray comes back with pneumonia, right? They still will not test me for Corona.
2: I'm like. Now, are, is everyone around you, all the doctors, everything, wearing masks yeah, and stuff? Yeah, hazmat suits.
3: Like, crazy. But they won't test you even though they- will not test me. No matter what I'm doing, I'm texting my manager, like, help me. I need to get tested. I don't feel right. It like, makes no sense. I'm at this point where I'm, like, desperate. I never had that feeling before of, of feeling desperate, you know? I'm lucky. I'm blessed. I make music. I can't believe it's my job to make music and I can kind of do what I want. I'm desperate sitting here in this hospital and they will not test me even though they know I have pneumonia. So they're like, sorry, CDC rules. We can't do it. We're only testing old people because they're going to die. You're young. You're not going to die. Even if you have it, you just need to go home. This I wait hours and hours and hours for this doctor to come in. And that's what they tell me, right? So the other doctor that's there is just like with me. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go to my office right now. I'm going to get a flu test. I'm going to test you for this thing. And I'm going to write on the thing this person i'm almost 99 positive he has corona i'm going to send it to quest diagnostics and i'm going to see what's going on so he took gave me a flu test but wrote i think this person has corona left it on their doorstep and they tested it for corona and that's how you found out and that's how i found out i was positive for corona wow and you know all the people trying to help me and the people there it's not their fault they're following regulations by the government that's whose fault we all know who i you know i could say whose fault it is to me
2: and you know they're just not handling it the right way and it's so early did i read it and also now that you have this no one really knows what to do if you do have it anyway there's no there are no treatments no one knows nothing so all we can do is read and do this
3: stuff and so i was in bed for 35
2: days wow how long were you in the hospital for they let me go they let you they're go they're like they didn't even i didn't
3: even get my results that night they're like go home if you have it just don't see anyone like they wouldn't test me did nothing for me they're like you have wow. pneumonia wow. you have pneumonia go just home. rest yeah and go home so, so you
2: stay in bed for you stay home for 35 days i'm
3: home in bed and i'm just feeling awful i'm hallucinating what what that what fever. type of therapeutics are you doing i had a fever for 16 days which was you go crazy well, how high did it go up 103 was the worst and mm. then it was kind of down um and you know it was really hard for me i played guitar you know that's how we met i came and played guitar here and we'll talk about that after but i played guitar every day for my whole life and i i'm suddenly not wanting to play guitar because it's i don't want to play in this negative place in this mindset and then you know i think just after that and dealing with post covid stuff was tricky but i got back and i think i'm making the best music of my life now so
2: and since you've recovered have you had any bad days or has it been pretty consistently good
3: um i haven't had knock on wood a bad day in a really long time but you know a couple months ago if i was doing kind of strenuous exercise or really pushing myself i would find myself kind of in like a mental fog And that was hard, but what it made me do was, you know, and I'm sure I know from talking to you before, but um, I was working, I was the producer that was working 24 hours a day. Working the day with someone, working the night with someone else, my studio's in my house, working nonstop. It's made me change my hours and work kind of more in a, in a more of a scheduled thing. If creativity strikes at a different time, then I'll deal with that or use it as a decision, but it's not a necessity. And so doing that has kind of made me take better care of yourself. Take better care of myself. And if and if I want to exercise, I'll do it super early in the morning, where it doesn't affect my day, and I'm not going one thing into the other, or at nighttime, and just kind of finding different ways. I'm not in the gym pounding weights, but I never really liked doing that anyway, you know. Surfing, um, spending time in the water, paddling, doing yoga, walking, doing really long walks, stuff like that. It's all I had to adjust like that, and doing those adjustments was not really something that affected my life. Where in uh, New York did you grow up? I grew up in Great Neck originally in Long Island. Um, And then funny, I went to NYU and lived in Weinstein dorms, just like someone else I know. Mm -hmm. A Long Island Jew that that, uh, went to New York in New York City to try and make music. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to um, play gigs and play in in bars, but, like, I got through with my parents of, like, okay, if you get—I got into NYU, so you got to go. Went to Weinstein Dorms, was making music and out of my dorm room until I dropped out, and how was that?
2: What was your first um, professional experience in music?
3: My first, when I, like, really, really kind of professional thing, um, besides just making records on my own at my house and everything, was— I got to NYU and the roots had just started their Jimmy Fallon thing and they were doing these amazing jams at the Highline Ballroom in New York cuz they were there and they were you know wanted to do it and I remember I waited outside um, after the show for a long time to talk to Questlove I wanted to talk to him I was so he's in, not only one of the, the coolest. best how knowledgeable is that guy just unbelievable on on everything and i was a big you know i loved his his website okay player that reviewed music i would find a lot of music on there Was just always searching and he's such an audiophile you know so anyway so i talked to him and i was like hey man i want to jam i want to jam with you guys because i would go to jams all the time i would go to blues jams and bring my guitar and that's really how i like i learned to play with other people as i had bands but they my band sucked do you know what i mean like i went to these jams at the cutting room and the bitter end and the bottom line and all these places and would just be there with my guitar and i'd get up and we'd play little wing for and no one practiced with each other before or superstition and i would to learn how to catch horn lines and kind of that was like really important to me i would steal a car and drive out to manhattan from great neck and do that all all the time so i i asked Questlove if i could jam with him And he was like, yeah, talk to this girl. She does the jams. He was just kind of like, really nice and cool. So I got this woman's number. Her name was Ginny. And I called her probably a thousand times. And I was 17 at this time. And uh, emailed her and she would not answer me. So I was like, okay, the jam, it's Thursday. It's next Thursday. And I didn't hear, am I jamming, am I not? So I bring my guitar and I go at sound check time. I'm like, I'm going to just sneak into this place and go. Because Questlove will see me and he said, Oh yeah, you can jam. And I had a big heart. You know, I'd follow my heart. Of course he's gonna let me do that, right? So I sneak in. I'm like, I'm here for the gig. I'm playing tonight. Sir, suddenly they come right in. People are coming at all. And um, Questlove's not there, but that woman, Ginny, is there and she sees me and she's just her face goes white, right? And so they're like, give me a wristband, and I'm there, and I'm waiting by the side of the stage with my guitar. All these people come. I see Bilal play for the first time and he does like a whole lot of love. I don't even know who Bilal was. And then, you know, I'm like, oh my God, this guy's incredible. And watching Captain Kirk play guitar, who's an amazing musician. And I'm sitting there and I don't get asked to jam, obviously. But I see this woman, Ginny, freaking out the whole time. She can't handle what's going on with the amount of people that are there. And the guys need drinks and want to smoke weed and it's just too much for her to handle and so my brain i'm in the music business program at NYU my brain goes i need an internship maybe this could be my internship so i was like hey you know i, I know i didn't get to jam and stuff like that but like you seem like you need an intern like you're you're you you have too much going on she was like i actually do need an intern here send your resume so send my resume i get a whole thing and i get the job Great. of being this girl's intern and working at OK Player during the week and helping with the jam. Great. Every week. So I'm backstage every time I bring my guitar, every single time. And I never get asked to play. And I'm an annoying little kid. But I learn how to roll blunt from Black Thought <laughs> and roll them as blunts before it was smoking, get drinks for people. And I'm around all these amazing musicians, like the best musicians. And... And you know, I get to know James Poyser really well, and I get to know Black Thought and Kirk and Questlove and all the people around in their crew, and you know, guys from the Fugees come and Erica Badu come and 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 Bilal and all those people, and I'm and I'm just meeting all these people, and, and I'm open to a different kind of music than I was listening to than the rock and roll that I was raised on, and this one night happens where. Um, Kirk's father was really sick and couldn't make the gig, and so Questlove's like, "All right, you got your guitar," and I didn't have my guitar that night, <laughs> so I run back to at Weinstein Dorms, get my guitar, come back, and I got to play that night, and I did great. It great. was one of those moments great. where I did great. You great. know, I I understood the space, and I had been watching how they did their stuff every night, and did great. And then they let me jam a bunch from there and would let me play a bunch of times. And I met amazing artists and got kind of my first gigs playing for artists, not doing my own thing uh, from there. And that's kind of
2: how it started. What was your first studio gig?
3: My first studio gig? I was making my own records. um, And then uh, the first time I produced, I was working with this kid, Jared Evan. He was assigned to Interscope. Um, and I was playing guitar for him kind of through all that stuff. And then he would always bring me around with him and want me to play guitar. And the guy that was producing him was Jimmy Douglas, one of the greats. Um, and he kind of taught me how to play guitar in the studio and double track myself and get parts and work through stuff. And I would play for a long time and then he'd chop parts out. So that I kind of cut my teeth that way. Um, and then used it to make my own records. And then as I was going on tour with people, I was on tour with an artist named Cody Simpson and, and Justin, and then they wanted me to make their records. Um, and I just would kind of did that and moved out to LA and made that one album with Glenn in, um, in Nashville on tape, which was a great experience too. I think everyone should make an album on tape at some point, just once to see what that process is like it's a fuck ton harder and doesn't really make that much of a difference for everyone that says it does it really doesn't but you know drums sound great on tape and I'm so happy I had the experience now we have all the plugins that make it sound like tape anyway so why are you gonna do that to yourself um yeah and I came out here and I had this song that I wrote with a friend of mine named Ali Tamposi who's still my number one collaborator up until today we're We're working together on Monday. Again, we've been working together for nine years, nonstop. Never had an argument. Um, And we wrote this song called Let Me Love You, uh, which was on a guitar, and it was a folk song. And it kind of got passed around the industry in that way. Everyone we heard this song, and I played it for Justin because he was a good friend of mine, and he really wanted the song. And then everyone else somehow started cutting the song. I didn't understand how people were cutting my song without asking me or talking to me. It felt wrong. It was like, and I had told Justin he could do the song already. So, I kind of had to like get involved with that part of the industry, which I never did before. I'd start talking to these record label guys and these managers and these different people, and kind of be like, "No." I learned the power of no, kind of the first time, which you know you have to say and be like, "Hey, no, this is not actually happening. I don't care what you want to pay or what it like I promised this song to someone else." And so, through a long story, Justin ended up singing the song and that was my first like big hit song. Um and it was such a cool experience to I didn't know that it was going to be that. I just everyone wanted the song for a reason and um it was amazing. So like the first time I went to one of his shows and I saw him play that song and then everyone in the crowd was singing, held the mic out and it was words I wrote about like hurt and pain I had. But to them, it was the happiest thing ever. And it was just like in a, a surreal, amazing experience. And I think it's when you see that happen, you want to do that again and again and again. Um, and- What was the next one? The next one after that, was a Selena Gomez song that she did with Kaigo which is another song that was on the guitar it's called It Ain't Me
2: Did you write it for her or you just wrote it and then she heard it
3: I just wrote it and played it for her cuz we were friendly um and she loved it and cut it kind of instantly so many of my songs that you know became big songs have these insane long stories of me flying to japan for 24 hours and doing all this stuff that i had to do to get get the record across the finish line which i'm sure you have crazy getting the getting the song sometimes is the easiest part and getting the artist to actually do the song is really hard sometimes doesn't make sense but it is um that was the easiest song i ever had that one she she sang the song and made her tweaks to it and she sounded amazing on it and i did the production with kygo and it kind of just came out two months later um and so that one was 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 awesome
0: we'll be right back with more from andrew watt
1: after the break apple card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent
0: Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now. We're back with more from Andrew Watt and Rick Rubin talking about their mutual friend, drummer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Chad Smith.
2: What was the first session you ever played on with Chad? Chad
3: came to play on, I was, when I was uh, signed to Republic Records as as a rock artist and kind of doing that, he came and played on uh, one of my, a couple of my songs. I'd met him, I was in that band with Glenn Hughes and Jason Bonham back in the day. um, And I met Chad through that. And we just kind of became tight. And as you know, Chad loves music more than literally anything in the world, and will actually play on anything if you ask. And him. and it'll be great. And it will be amazing. And in any style. And it's so funny. Chad's kid is just permanently set up at my house. It's the old Gretsch kid he has, and he's like the house drummer. I mean, he plays on everything that we do. Um, so we did that, and we just kind of became really close. And that Blood Sugar album was like my DNA as a musician when I was learning how to play all these different instruments and the kids that I was playing with didn't want to play as much as me so I just learned everyone's instrument and I learned how to play that in that album kind of on every instrument so first time I sat down to play with Chad my instincts were kind of similar to his because that's where my DNA was kind of playing and even now when we when we're making an Aussie album or something he does a fill and I'm playing a lick it's uh same, it's weird. we have we have really similar instincts, which is so cool. He told me another amazing story i'm 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 breaking him out because kind of I want to know uh, your answers to this kind of stuff. Um, you know, we were talking, I think like a year and a half ago, just about demos of things. and I don't remember how exactly it came up, but he played me the demo of California And the music under that song is a completely different music it's like couldn't be any more any more different but the top line is the same exactly the same the same words the same spacing the same amount of verse to the chorus line and he was like you know this music was not right it wasn't you know not that it wasn't that it was good or bad it just wasn't right and it wasn't working but you pushed them really hard to like go and make different music for this amazing top line and then it's like i think it's one of their biggest songs how does that process work for you i
2: I honestly don't remember that happening i believe it did happen but i don't think that it was my idea i have a feeling as i remember it and again i don't remember it well um, we had the song and then John came in one day and he said, I think I have a different way to play the song that's better. Cause the way it typically works is the band works on music and then Anthony gets inspired by the music he hears and then he writes the melody and then the words. And he had gone through that phase, wrote the melody and the words to the music, the existing music. And then John heard the melody and the words and said, Hmm, I think there's better music. And then he. As I remember it, John just had the idea to present a different version, and we all liked it better. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the only time that particular thing happened with them.
3: It's amazing to not to to. A lot of people will just be like, "All right, this one's not working." Like an A becomes a C, and just just leave it and throw it. How many great songs are there that you have, you know, like that? But to like work something to the bone or, or repurpose it like that, and then it becomes. It becomes the album, right?
2: We would always try to consider every possibility to make every song as good as it could be. That takes patience. Absolutely. That's the whole job, really, is... Sitting and waiting and going through and not making... Trying options, never thinking you know how it's supposed to go. If you think you know how it's supposed to go, it'll only be as good as you can imagine, whereas... When you watch it happen, you're surprised and blown away by how much better it can be than what you originally imagined. Yeah.
3: And people get frustrated in that process sometimes. And that's a balancing act as well, right? Somebody who's like, no, I like it like this, or someone that's unwilling. And I that one of the great Rick advice sessions I had with you was I had an artist that was unwilling to do what I really, really felt strongly was like amazing and you told me you can push so far but at the end of the day you got to let the artist that's earned their right make the decision you know so you get to that crossroads sometimes where if they didn't want to change that song it would have just been what it but it, what it was yeah but hopefully then there's a situation where someone
2: does listen and does accept the change and it's positive yeah ending. but they also can't none of us are right all the time either totally. you know it's like we, we don't know we think we have our opinion we share our opinion and then we see You know, I passed on working with Guns N' Roses. I passed on working with Jane's Addiction. I, You know, I passed on working with a lot of people because I just, when I saw it, I didn't hear it at first. Yeah. And maybe that's what's supposed to happen because had I made Appetite for Destruction, it might've been a very different album and maybe it wouldn't have been as good. You know, maybe it wouldn't have been what it needed to be. So who knows? You know, who knows? There's so much about the process that's unknown and we just have to ride it And be open to the possibility of it being as good as it could be. And what I try to suggest with the artists I work with is if we don't both love it at the end, then it's not as good as it could be. So in both cases, so if you feel strongly about it and the artist doesn't like it, that means it's not there yet. And if they like a different version and you don't like it yet, it's still not done. It means there's, you haven't really cracked the code. Because when you really crack the code, it's obvious to everyone. You couldn't imagine it any other way. Yeah. This is it. This is the record. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just the patience of going through that process. It's amazing. Yeah. I had uh, an experience the other day. I won't mention the name of the artist, but um, uh, with a producer and an artist. And they asked my opinion. I gave my opinion. And the producer got really defensive. And he's like, oh, I, you know, I really believe in this direction that we're going. It's like, Okay. It's like, it's fine. I'm just telling you how it strikes me and at least experiment with the suggestion and see if anything good comes from it. You never know. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, all you can do is share your taste. Yeah, it's it's all taste. And, and there's no right or wrong taste. You know, everyone has their own. How do you like working with other producers, like being involved kind of like it's that? It's fine. I'm, I'm not attached to anything, so I can... I'm very comfortable sharing what I like and what I don't. Um, I'll give any suggestions of possible solutions, uh, but I'm also open to hearing any possible solutions and sharing what I think works best. Um, a lot of people
3: also, you know, you have, you have a myth behind you, which is so cool and awesome. Nothing cooler than that. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to share my experience. I, I got to work with you once in the studio. Um, and we were, you were making a Justin Bieber album, um, which that stuff was killing. And I'd love to hear it one day if it still exists anywhere. Yeah, it exists. A, the music a, is incredible. On a drive somewhere. incredible. And I remember, you know, so I got a phone call from Justin, um, and who I had who been playing with and was on tour with for a while. And he was just like, Hey Andy, what are you doing? Can you come down to the studio? I'm, I'm making this making this album i want you to play guitar and i was like yeah of course you know that's awesome like where are you doing it he's like oh i'm making it with rick rubin at shangri-la and i was like what you know i just got in the uber came all the way out i was like let's go let's go let's go and i and i got to i went into that room that we're looking at right there and um chris dave was on drums who's no one better than him. And these other, a bunch of other amazing musicians, great bass player, great keyboard player. Um, and I was the worst musician in the room by far, which, <laughs> you know, it's my first time in front of you. Yeah. Justin's put, went out on a limb. He's like, let me bring my guy. You yes. know, I don't know you. I know there was another guitar player on the session. I don't know what happened to him, but for whatever reason I got brought out there and they got thrown into the fire and you had two choices: you either, you know, suck and can't do the job, or you try and rise. And that was like such a a challenge as a as a musician for me in the best way. Um, and you did the coolest thing, which I do constantly as I'm making music now. Is kind of like I think you kind. Of, I think if I look back on it, the reason why I was there is because like I got like taught how to produce. <laughs> Are you in that moment where you were playing us all this amazing music? You're almost like DJing for us. You're playing us, because I remember you wanted to, from what I remember, make stuff with Justin that was like he kept saying, I want to make my thriller, I want to make my thriller, right? Yeah. Like that's what he was saying in yes. that time. And so you're playing us all this amazing music, you know, Hollow Notes and cheek and and other Nile-produced stuff, and some Michael stuff, and all different, all different things. Um, and you told us as a band, you're like, okay, learn this, play along to this. So we had like about five or ten minutes to learn what we're hearing. And I'm like, the keyboard player is right there. I'm like, what's the chorus, what's the chorus, what's the chorus? Like I'm just like, I'm holding on but like trying to fit in. And uh, we learned the song and then you said, okay, now play it in a different key. So now we start playing it in a different key. And then you say, okay, now play it at this tempo. So then we start playing it at a different tempo. And then you said, okay, now don't play it at all. Just play something that's like it. That's not it, but that's like it, that feels like it. And we would start doing that, and then the red button would get pressed. And it was such a good exercise in like, you know, yeah, there's the times where you write a riff that is in your heart or whatever, and it comes, and it's like, but you have a bunch of musicians in a room and to guide us into making music that would be appropriate for what you wanted to make with him was such a was such a cool experience and then the thing that was really amazing was you would come into the room and you only you didn't talk to us on the talk back. you only talked to us if we were doing something that you didn't like if we were doing something that you liked we weren't we weren't sculpted I just kept playing the part that I was doing over and over again and if you wanted Chris to change a pattern you kind of took an ear off him and told him or if you wanted me to do something you kind of told me and that was such like a hands-on like amazing exercise and I don't remember what the music sounded like because it was so long ago but it was incredible and I've made so much of my music exactly like that music that's out from there and it was
2: you know when was the first time you did that what was that might have been the first time (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> honestly do you remember been, the process kind of
3: going absolutely 100
2: i remember the process exactly it's because usually when i go into the studio we go into the studio typically we go into the studio with songs already written i don't usually go into the studio with a blank slate to make something yeah justin wanted to go in with more of a blank slate which is not the way i normally work but i'm down to try whatever so this was a way to jump start the process to try to find grooves or feels or directions starting points and then hopefully that would inspire a vocal idea and which when he was up for doing it was incredible amazing. every amazing every time amazing every, like ridiculous right over
3: there, it yeah. went in there Ed- it
2: ridiculous so then the vocal idea would happen and that would kind of determine what's supposed to happen next you know because now we sort of have the the, maybe not a whole song but a part of a song like usually the key part of the song maybe not the hook or sometimes just the hook but but like a key component and then it's like okay if this is this part what naturally wants to happen next and you try all the different variations and see where it goes it's amazing people don't realize how unbelievable of a musician he really is
3: like as a singer as a drummer as a piano player like he's it's not just like part of the show i mean he's really is super talented gifted like that and i think he really enjoyed that process so much you know i want to hear those tapes at some point Well, listen there's some good stuff on there
2: yeah do you Remember? think of yourself more now as a songwriter producer or a guitar player i don't know um i think a producer um guitar you, would you say you spend most of your time in producer mode yes yeah Makes sense. Um, one
3: thing that I was thinking about the other day um, was I
2: i just made this amazing
3: album with Miley Cyrus, which I'm so excited about. It's finally her doing her like rock thing and singing. And the songs are totally have, you know, uh, they're hooky and poppy and where they need to be and stuff. But it's her really in her rawest form. And I was closing my eyes the other day as I was, making music with their headphones on because my studio we have it kind of all open and i was closing my eyes and i was listening to this incredible voice come out and i'm like i am so lucky to like listen to the human voice the human voice is like the most incredible because you hear people play great guitar part that could mess i'm sure mike campbell got your heartstrings going many times before or a great you know keyboard part or a great riff but like the human voice is the only thing where you can take melody and attach lyrics to it and evoke emotion in a different way. And like you're sitting there understanding, you're, tr- you're guiding this person to get the vocal that's going to be what's on record that everyone hears and is the emotion strong enough. And it's a very cathartic experience for me, like every time. And, you know, I'm so lucky to work with such a great singer, especially like her, And I just had this moment where I just felt like really blessed the other day when I was just listening to like the vocal of a song that I think is so special and it comes to life. Um, Is that your favorite part of producing when you do the vocal?
2: Um, No, but I think for me, the most exciting part is when it's, it goes from ordinary to unusual. Like, Like in the moment when everybody's playing, and it's pretty good, and it's pretty good, and it's pretty good. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and it can be a tiny thing. And all of a sudden, it shifts into this like you've never heard anything this good before. And you don't know why. You, you know, you don't know why, what you don't know what changed between the take before and this take, or between the last 30 seconds and this 30 seconds, but something aligns, and that feeling of um like uh it's like a harmonic convergence that happens <laughs> and that's i'm just waiting for that
3: yeah. <laughs> that's what i'm always and waiting and you know for. it when you hear it you,
2: you can't you can't miss it you know
3: i got to hang with nile uh, rogers recently who's one of the great record makers Amazing. and he said something similar to what you just said where his process i'd love to know everyone's process because everyone's different um he, when he was recording with Sheik all the time, they'd record a bunch of takes and they would cut out the third chorus and move it to the first chorus because everyone was playing better by then. They knew the song and it was exciting and they got through the thing and he would just take the third chorus and make it the first chorus. And like they would have to be playing as good as that for him to do it, but that was like a trick that like always worked. Yeah. And if you think about like good times that's like later in the song, but you hear it at the top
2: it's really we would, we would do the same sometimes, or sometimes we would re- repeat a section of the song, just because this one particular version of the verse was never as good as that. So that became the first and second verse, just because, just because. <laughs> so you're sitting in your dorm at NYU,
3: and you're you're making beats, right? You're, what are you using? An MPC or an 808? Uh, an 808. And you are listening to when the levee breaks. And you're like these drums are out of control how do you make the decision to be like i'm gonna this is i'm gonna loop this i'm gonna show this to someone and these should be the drums for you know one of the best beastie boy songs ever like what was that process do you remember or
2: i would say i was in general always making beats djing listening to records and djing and looking for opportunities to and there was no such thing as sampling then. So it was more like things to either scratch in or like a breakbeat where you could play, you know, on two turntables and play a little section back and forth. So it was just an interesting idea to use something like when Levy breaks as a breakbeat, because most people were making breakbeats out of more R and B records. Yeah.
3: And when you when Paul's boutique comes out and sampling is changed forever, are you like? Fuck! How am I going to make records now? No,
2: I just thought it was the greatest thing I ever heard. I never thought, I never, I never uh, thought about how it affected me. I just thought about this is great music and I want to listen to this. I well, remember the laws
3: changed now. when
2: I first heard uh, Paul's Boutique was before it came out, and I was with Chuck D, and we were at the Mondrian Hotel uh, in L.A. On, in L.A. and we listened to it together, and both of us said, "This is the future of hip hop. This is the greatest thing we've ever heard." We were so excited, we loved it. We loved it. We'll be right back with more
0: from Andrew Watt
2: after the break.
0: As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com the Boar's Nest.
3: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve.
0: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your
3: business further at T-Mobile.com now. We're back
0: with more from Andrew Watt and Rick Rubin.
2: What was the, what's your first memory of music in your life? First thing you remember, any experience of music? Uh,
3: I went to go see George Benson when I was like six with my parents at like a.
2: Westbury uh, Music Fair? Yes. That'd be the place you'd see George Benson. At the Westbury
3: Music Fair. And I remember him, I didn't play any instruments at this point, but I remember him singing and playing his guitar solos the same time and being like my mind was just like blown like how this guy is not I mean now reflecting on it's like he could how many good great guitar players have you seen just play the most melodic things you've ever seen but he could sing it at the same time and that two parts of his brain just completely working together I just that was like one of the first things that I ever remember what kind of music was playing in your house growing up Um, My dad played me. The Beatles was the number one thing, but Sabbath and Zeppelin and The Who. And my mom was listening to Stevie Wonder and George Michael and Neil Young and just all that stuff. And my dad's vinyl collection was like a huge thing for me. I remember finding like the All Things Must Pass album super young and playing that as like, you know, you go through the Beatles and then you get the Beatles spinoffs. That, to me, is the best of the Beatles spinoffs because um, he had those songs for so long and it was kind of holding him back. But yeah, all that stuff, just listen to. And then my brother who was the one that was like Alice in Chains Unplugged and Pearl Jam, Blood Sugar Sex How Magic. How much older was your Five brother? years, five years. So I'm turning 30 on Tuesday, actually. Congratulations. Yeah, Libra, Libra Gang.
2: Um, yeah. What was the first music that you felt like was your music as a, as a kid, not your older brother's music, not your parents' music, but your music. So funny, man. It's like one of the things I want to
3: talk to you about, but like I went to Sam Goody and I remember being like eight years old, kind of nine years old. And my mom would just leave me in there and go and do stuff. And uh, I was talking to the guy. At the store, I was like, I want to buy these some CDs. I have money for three CDs. And he was showing me stuff and asking me about what I like. And the three CDs he gave me were Led Zeppelin One, um, Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses, and Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Eye Chili Peppers, which that album affected me the most. Really? Yeah. It was. Because, at the time, that's like a true melding of genres. Mm-hmm. Zeppelin is my favorite band ever, you know. And um, obviously Guns N' Roses is amazing. And I both those albums are in my DNA, for sure. Um, but the Blood Sugar Sex Magic album was like, I had to know every crevice of that. And it was so cool to hear rap and rock and funk and all of those different things kind of coming together. And... um it really just had a super profound effect on me. I
2: have no idea. Yeah. Nice.
3: Yeah. And then, you know, being, becoming so close with Chad, kind of working with him and that's how we met. We did a session together and then we became so close. And then obviously he was, you know, gracious enough to bring me around the other guys and they've all become friends and are, I know those are your, that's your family. They're the most special group of people that you can imagine. But, you know, it was this weird thing where you kind of your idols become your friends. And that's such a trip. You know, that's where I feel like the simulation is like a real thing. You know, I found myself in Egypt with them when they played at the pyramids last year. And I'm like getting I'm so lucky to like not only go and and watch them play, but they let me come on this amazing adventure of like riding camels. And they shut down the pyramids. And I was like, they're there taking in that culture of like privately looking at these things that are older than time and that no one really knows how they got there. And I was just like, you know what? Maybe this whole life thing is not really a real thing. Cause you're not supposed to do this. You know, you're not supposed to like get these experiences.
2: It's miraculous. I'm sure you had those moments. Absolutely. It's unbelievable. Happens, it happens all the time. And I still every day I can't believe when it happens. Yeah. Happened yesterday. (laughs) Happened yesterday. What happened yesterday? Um just had a long conversation with Bruce Springsteen that was mind-blowing. And it was just a trip. Yeah. Surreal. I heard this awesome story of
3: um Jimmy was producing that album, Born to Run, and um he brought down like the mix Mix mixes back to his dad's house in and uh he had them on cassette. It was like cassette at that time. And he went to sleep it was like late they worked on the mixes all night and he got up in the morning to like go get it and make sure it still sounded good in the morning give his ears a break and the cassette was gone he's like where the fuck are these mixes like oh my god and freaking out calls his dad and his dad's like on the construction site that he works on he's like oh my god jimmy this is the best thing you've ever done the guys on the site they love it it's it's amazing so he's like, funny. "Dad." bring the mixes home. You don't understand. You got to bring the mixes home. And he never told Bruce that story until like really, really recently. And, but if you think about it, the working class guy on the construction site heard this stuff before anyone else. There's kind of nothing more that Bruce would have. I don't know Bruce at all, but I, I just know what I've heard. And I think he would probably really like that. Absolutely. So I just love that story. I love those stories behind, behind the record. Um, and then you know I I got the ultimate honor, which I, you've had a bunch of times, of uh, making an Aussie album last year, which you know you asked me what the first thing my dad played me was Sabbath and yeah. stuff, and like you've spent time with that guy. I He's mean, amazing. Is he not the greatest? Kindest, super funny, the funniest person ever. You know he told me he told me a story of like he went to hang out with you one night after he was drinking and he like sang you. <laughs>
2: He did. He did. I got an entire Black Sabbath concert in my living room as the sun was coming up. Uh, from a, from a high and drunk Ozzy. It was unbelievable. Did
3: you put on the records and yeah. he was singing along? Right? Yes. So I found out with him that if I start any of his songs, he'll automatically sing along. So for me, as like I'm such a Sabbath fan, I just like the other day we're in the middle of writing. We're doing another album. And um, I started playing Sweet Leaf and he just sang the whole song. It's like, what else do you want out of life? Just listen to Ozzy sing it. He still loves his songs. He's been singing the same songs for 50 years.
2: And, and he can still do it. It's hit. amazing. Amazing.
3: For me, the coolest that it, you know, working with uh, with him, I didn't want to, I didn't, I would like almost didn't want to do it. I made that song with him in post. I had like the idea to put them together because Post loves Ozzy so much. And I had taken Post to the Rainbow Bar and Grill because he just like, where can I drink in LA work and listen to rock? And I'm like, there's actually the place where you want to be. I brought him the rainbow. Then he started, he was like, he's the new Lemmy over there. Do you know what I mean? He's there every night. That's where he drinks. Probably not anymore with all this going on, but that's where he was. And he bought i wasn't there but he bought an ozzy photo off the wall there and he has this studio that he records in that's right down sunset from the rainbow so he's walking down sunset with a photo of ozzy a beer in his hand like hammered post malone and that visual in my head made me for whatever reason be like post and ozzy have to do a song together
2: if so, we could have got a picture of him walking home with the ozzy photo that would have been the perfect cover for the single. The best yeah.
3: the best ever um and so, yeah, we did that whole song, which was so much fun for me. And then he wanted to make an album. And I don't want to make, like, a shitty Ozzy album because his stuff is so good. Like, so, you know, Duff and Chad played on the album, Great. which, you know, both those guys <laughs> as yeah. well. and They're they're amazing and really helped make it authentic. But the, first, the moment for me that it was real was, like, Ozzy sang and then he doubled his voice. Yeah. And when he doubles his voice. It sounds
2: like Ozzy on record.
3: It's crazy. And I never experienced that before because usually you want like a double, at least for me to be like as close to each other as possible. And with him, the more different it is, the cooler it is. And it makes one that's clearly out of tune automatically not be out of tune. It's like one plus one equals two. I've never experienced it before.
2: Are you still listening to music all the time? I listen to music all the time, but my default listening is not music that I would ever work on. I probably listen to more classical and jazz now, just because I want a relief from you know. I spend so many hours in, in the recording totally. studio and over so many years that my my enjoyment listening tends to be a palate cleanser from what I'm working on.
3: Yeah, I don't I don't find myself listening to a lot of music anymore. Like yeah. in the car, I love silence because yeah. I'm. I like it, podcasts.
2: I listen to people talking.
3: Yeah. That, that too.
2: Interviews or uh, lectures. I really like learning stuff. So,
3: you're hearing so much music and loud music all the time. And it's like almost like you want to save your ears to be able to. Do you listen for fun or do you listen
2: to see what's happening? Both.
3: Um, the other night, I was, um, you know, we all go through our personal journeys. I was feeling a bit sad. Um, and I. Do you know why? Do I know why I was feeling sad? Yeah. yeah I know why I was feeling sad. Um, but I was kind of going through a thing where I realized, whatever, you know, you make decisions and then there's outcomes and you have to live with that kind of stuff. So so I came home and I there's a package for me, my house. So I opened it up and Ozzy had sent me the 50th anniversary of Paranoid. The vinyl had just come out. Um and I opened it up. It's great packaging. They they know what they're doing with that stuff. And in it were two live bootlegs concerts. One of them was from Zurich. So I popped it in on my turntable, and I just sat on my floor, and I just turned it up loud, and I just listened to this Sabbath live show. And it's like before Paranoid came out. Yeah. And the words are different. Yeah. But they're basically playing down Paranoid. And it's like, they're on fire. And I just couldn't stop smiling. It didn't matter what was going on. This music just it just affects me in such a way. It's amazing. So listening to that vinyl was just like a really good... It was the first time I like sat and listened to a record through all the way. And I flipped it and and just listened. And I was like, I got to go back and just... Do that more. It wasn't like the pressure of you saying, like, you want to hear what's happening. You know, I listen every Friday, New Music Friday comes out on Spotify. And that's, you know, they do their best to give you a bunch of songs that are coming out from artists that they, you know, whoever's choosing, that they, whether they're relevant or it's just cool or whatever it is, I kind of skim through that. I think usually once a week or I get it later. What
2: percentage of those things do you end up liking?
3: Very few. Um, because I I don't know. I listen to old stuff when I when I do listen, I listen to very old, very old music. But um I just Justin and just put out a new song with Benny Blanco that I thought was amazing and understated and really cool instead of overproduced and the opposite I I just heard that on Friday, which I thought was awesome and amazing. Um Yeah, I'm trying to think when the last time I I don't really listen to that many other people. I'll listen for like a second, just Mm -hmm. like I just want to like see what's going on. Mm -hmm. It's almost like Spotify has become like of like it's like checking the stocks in the morning. (laughs) It's really weird because that's the chart. There's chart there's a chart on there. It's like there's a global top fifty. You can fully see when your song where it is on the global top fifty and how far it's moving up, and how far it's moving down. And like people are listening to your music in real time and you're seeing how they like it. It's just, it's strange. This is really strange. So of course I look at that, try not to. When I'm in the middle of making stuff, I try. And when I'm, when, you know, I'm work so hard on the music that I make and mixing it and mastering it that by the time I'm done with it, it's like for everyone else. I kind of am getting worn out in the process of mixing lately. I don't think, I mean, I have had songs, of course, where the mix has catapulted the song and changed it. And But, you know, I have an engineer who I think is incredible named Paul Amalfa who works with me on everything I do. And his roughs are getting so good and they're doing what I want to the record I'm like, why am I now then going to sit with someone else who is amazing at what they do so naturally they have an ego about how they think stuff should be? And they've never heard my song. They don't know how what the words mean or which words should be a little louder or which parts I love the most because I've spent so much time on it. And then I got to go and spend another like two weeks doing this again with someone else and i'm already burnt on the song cuz we worked on it for so long i just find the process like now just because we can get the rough so close to be almost a little bit unnecessary sometimes do you run into that at all
2: or well i've i've definitely gotten to the point where we've got demos so good that no matter how much time we spend mixing it it's not as good as the rough mix and we end up going with the rough mix a lot
3: more now than ever is that happening because of how good the technology is and how good your engineers
2: are. I'll just say sometimes yes and sometimes no. Yeah. And same is true with mastering by the way. Like usually now for for a while now I'll always have the mastering lab master it the way they imagine it and then also send me a flat master which all that all that is is there's no EQ, there's no compression. All they're doing is balancing the level between songs so it doesn't get you know if one mix is quieter <laughs> yeah. than the next they just get it so that they all flow into each other without level changes, but without doing anything to them. And I would say eight out of 10 times we end up picking that over the Because they leave your mix the alone. Master.
3: They leave your mix alone. And you can get the mixes so loud now, right? That was the overall thing. I want it to be loud. I want it to be loud. Also, now, you know, you can change things. Like, Are there any albums that you made where you're like, I want to remaster this. I never look back. I I, I will the say to be. the
2: only thing that I'll say is like, if it was mastered using old technology, you know, 30 years ago, we might try remastering it now to see if just the technology has gotten better to where it sounds better. Yeah. You know, But also
3: what's the point if it's such a classic album that people love so much and have bought zillions of copies and mm. it means something to them, why change it? Yeah, it's true. Is it for the love of just making it better? This could sound better for you. Yeah. I
2: would never think about remixing anything or, um, it's more just the, I'll give you an example. Although this is an example about a remix and it has nothing to do with me. I'm just a fan, but I don't know if you've heard the, the last year's release of the white album deluxe version remixed and remastered. I did hear it. It blew my mind. Now it's probably my favorite album. Listened to it a million times in my life, and it only sounded better. It didn't sound different, but I felt like I could hear it in a way that I was never able to hear it before. Like yeah. there, were, It had a clarity that was never there, and a a detail. And it's not like, well, I hear this other thing that I never heard before because it's louder. It never felt like that. Shined more. It just was clear, yeah. and I loved it. So that was... The best example of somebody using technology to take something that couldn't be better and making it better and they mixed
3: it at Abbey Road, yeah, and they did it where it was made and they did it yeah. the right way yeah. and did George's son do yeah. that? yeah it's awesome Giles. yeah I mean those are those are those are the album I always say that every person that I work with if I'm working with an artist or a friend, anyone that's like i want to play guitar. What should I do? The only thing to do if you want to learn to play guitar is, or write songs is buy a Beatles chord book. That is it. If you sit with that book and you can play through every one of those songs, you don't have to do it well, but you can finger though every one of those chords and every one of those songs, you will know everything you need to know about writing a song because that's just it. I mean, and they were like... Badly classically trained musicians. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, they all started on classical music. Blackbird is like a flip of an old classical song. They were just like, that was so important to them, you know, in, in their upbringing of music. And because of that, the chords are so detailed, but they put them into pop songs. So, I mean, I think that's just like, the, for me, I'm taking chords and playing it and then making it minor after it's all Beatles it like, all that the time.
2: Response forever well thank you for uh, sharing stories thank
3: you for talking to me I don't even know really why I'm here I just want to
2: hang out with you (laughs) but we'll we'll continue now um, on a personal note cool Uh, thank
3: you
0: thanks to Andrew Watt for sharing some amazing stories with us we look forward to hearing more music from him in the future you can hear a playlist of some of our favorite Andrew Watt records at brokenrecordpodcast.com and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Podcast. There you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace.